Hello, welcome to episode number 252 of the Apple Law Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Head. I'd like to thank everybody for shopping on Amazon, supporting the show. You too can do the same thing by going to appleart.ca slash Amazon or appleart.ca slash USAmazon. You can do it the old-fashioned way by going to appleart.ca, click on those banners located on the right side, bookmark all those links. And every time you shop on Amazon, use those links to shop and support the show. It costs you no extra money. I'd like to thank the people helping me out on Patreon. You too can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Apolog. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Apolog is A-P-O-L-O-G-U-E. You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel at any time. Go buy a t-shirt. Go to apolog.ca slash shop. There's some music for sale there as well. On iTunes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and view the show. Give it five stars, please. Like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash And Follow me on Twitter at SimonHead666. Today, I have Mr. Steve Kravak, who is a producer. He's uh, worked with bands like the Doughboys, Asexuals. He's worked in LA with MXPX, Blink-182, Lester Jake, and tons of others as one of the head engineers at West Beach Recorders. Well, he also owns Porterhouse Records, which is a label based in California. He's just released a full-length album under the name Stephen Bradley that's called Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. He has guest performances from members of the Northern Pikes, MC5, Red Cross, and Social Distortion. It's a great record. I'm going to play a song right now. Here it is. Check it out. You were to send me the chemist's 
And that is Stephen Bradley. The song is called You Walk By. The album is called Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. It's out on Porterhouse Records now. You can buy it. It's, I think he's starting to release on vinyl. It's released on vinyl as well. So if you like vinyl, then go pick that up. Porterhouse Records, there'll be all the, all the information will be in the description of this podcast. So anyways, here he is, Steve Kravak on the Apple Lab Podcast. very rarely met in person but i do know we've worked with a lot of the same people i'm started by the way i'm started y- yes this is that's true like i think i met you uh it was i was on tour with snfu and uh we met somewhere and it was you and i think jay bentley was hanging out from bad religion and mm-hmm. we were about to go to australia and uh new zealand and australia and that would have been 90 I want to say 94. Four? Yeah, yeah. And um, you were still, you know, you'd moved down there years ago before that, right? Like a few years? No, I had, I, I had actually moved down like right before that, actually. Okay, yeah. It had all just sort of happened in a, in a, in a whirlwind because I had come down to uh, L.A. at the end of 93 I was hanging out, look, checking out studios, seeing if I could get a job somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And um, this is just after the, the, I guess I'm trying to remember the dates, but I think it was just after the Christmas holiday or whatever, like early January. And um, so I was here and I was handing out resumes and nothing was really happening. And I was like, okay, well, that's that. I'm going to head back home. And I flew up to Vancouver on my way back to Montreal. I stayed with my family for like a day or two. I flew back to uh, Vancouver. I woke up the next morning, turned on the TV, and it was the 94 Earth, Northridge earthquake. Yeah. 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 And that's what ended up opening up a door for me. Uh, you know, I ended up working with Donald Cameron and Brett Gerowitz at, at West Beach Recorders, and their old engineer, Joe Piccarello, he and his girlfriend after that earthquake were just like, that's enough. We're moving back to Florida. We don't. Oh. We're done with Hollywood. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's how that all know? came down. So you, so that's that kind of created that opening, and so I had to scramble to shut my studio down and close my business, and you know, pack everything up and get get ready to go. You know, and I think it was like March. You know, when I when I got down there, you know, it was just a couple of months to clear everything up and and get there. You know, was this pre work papers, or did you like did you already figure that part out? No, no, that was that that was pre work pa- papers, but. I mean, they figured out that I was kind of responsible and showing up for work every day. Yeah. Like it didn't take them that long to figure that out. So then when I said, look, how would you feel about sponsoring me? Uh, that They were fine with that. And so it all was, you know, it, all that stuff got resolved. I ended up with a, with a, it took a little while to resolve it, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up getting a green card. And then about, uh, about six years ago, I converted my green card to uh, citizenship. Okay, 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 okay. So, but let's go back 
even further because you had done work with Doughboys, Asexuals. I think Rise too. Did you work with Rise at one point? I don't think I did. I think that was like a little bit after. Ah, okay. Um, I was doing a lot of work with Alex from the Nils. Yeah. We had a sort of like a little side project called Los Patos or The Ducks. Yeah. Uh, and we were in the midst of tracking a full length uh, record yeah. of songs that he had written that were supposed to kind of, they weren't really Nils songs. Uh, there was a couple of older Nils songs that we put on it, but he wrote a new batch for this band. And so we ended up tracking that stuff. There was three reels. Two of them were, uh, one of them was lost, but I found uh, the other one and I've managed, I think, to rescue about six songs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think like five or six of them have his vocals on them. Really? So that was, yeah, that was a project that I was working on a lot uh, at the, the last year or so that I was in Montreal. And we actually, Alex and I also, under that Los Patos, Los Patos name, we did release a three-song demo, like a cassette that I took and I shopped in the States. I took it to, you know, the, the labels in New York and the labels in LA. And I think we maybe got, I want to say we got some, we got some letters back. We got, we got all rejections. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we got, I'm, I'm going to say we got three or four uh, uh, letters back, like where people actually like listen to it. And this is back in the old days, right? When business was all done over, you know, phone and via cassette and yep. like a completely different time. There was no, send me the files, brah. Yeah. S -s -s send me, no, brah, don't send me the. Don't send me the files, brah. I want the link, brah. Yeah. Don't send oh, yeah. the files. The files could be corrupt, brah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the <laughs> the old-fashioned way is, uh, where's your MySpace? That's old-fashioned now. Like, send yeah. me your MySpace link, and I'll, uh, I'll yeah. So, no, yes. to totally, Simon. As a matter of fact, uh, and I'm not kidding, I was looking through my Rolodex today. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Rolodex. Yeah. I was looking for, I just because I like having stuff like passwords and stuff written down somewhere. Yeah. Cool. And uh, I was scrolling by, and I saw the MyPace card in the in the Rolodex calendar. So if that doesn't say it all right there, I don't know what does. Well, I still get updates for MySpace. Like it's crazy. Like I I get I, that's how old school I am. Like I I get MySpace updates because I had a band in the early two thousands that was all over MySpace. Like sort of I guess mid two thousands. Right. Uh, but it was. I mean, that was the thing until Facebook came in to sort of destroyed it, like ate it up from spat it out. But, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they just lost yeah. like what, twelve million songs or something? Like they just lost so much data over this backup. Did you hear that story? No, I they didn't. Were, they were backing up all their data and their servers, and I guess something went wrong, and they lost oh. like ninety percent of their music that that was uploaded to MySpace. <laughs> like, wow. Whoops. Whoopsie. Wow. So, okay, so, you, so you're in Montreal, you're working with Alex, it was this sort of, man, because, yeah, that's sort of a tragic yeah, story. Yeah, and the other, band, the other band that I was doing a lot of work there the last few years that I was there was Jerry Jerry and the Sons of Rhythm Orchestra. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, we did that record for Aquarius Capital in Canada, mm -hmm. um, and that didn't, it didn't light the fire that they wanted it to light, unfortunately. The one we did before that, the Battle Hymn of the Apartment, that one did well. Yeah, that one like that one was well received and and you know sold 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 pretty well. And then I don't know. I think we might have gone just a little too jazzy for folks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, 
but but that's okay. You need some jazz in there. You need some rhythm and blues. You need some jazz. Oh yeah, we got stretch. You got stretch. So yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. I was working with them. I was working doing some work with Mark Goodwin. Mm. Uh, so there was a few folks that I was circulating with uh, towards the last like year or so that uh, last two years uh, or so that I spent in in Montreal. Yeah, before I, I moved away, I was definitely pretty st- still active in the in the scene there for sure. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, you just you just uprooted and left for Los Angeles with no real intention. Well, I'm with intentions, but no real promises, right? Well, I knew there was a job there, but I didn't know who I was going to work for. Yeah, and so there was, you know, a pretty sharp learning curve, you know. And Hollywood is not Montreal. <laughs> uh, I think I think Hollywood's a smaller town than Montreal is, actually. Really interesting. Yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a, in the in the entertainment industry, like in Hollywood, like everybody knows everybody, you know? And so if you say something expected, it'll be repeated elsewhere, you oh, know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've spent limited time sort of down there. So, you know, early nineties wise actually, and then into the mid and you know early two thousands. But yeah, I never really got inside, you know, I never really sort of, right, I never right. sort of like broke my way in. Because I, well, I mean, that's the most challenging thing, right? Is getting there and making oh, yeah. a name for yourself, right? Th- that's it. That's it. And and but the thing is, it's an amazing city. Yeah. And like the the finest from all over the world come here to try and make it. You know, whether that be in like acting or whether that be in music or recording or what have you. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly surrounded by these people that are just high energy and uh, and want to network and want to learn and want to communicate and it's incredibly invigorating and i think coming out of the scene in montreal where there had been uh i don't know the scene was kind of insular you know what i mean yeah the, the, because the english scene there was so small you know mm-hmm. uh i i don't know uh, i just found it refreshing to get out into los angeles and i found that people really wanting to get stuff done and, uh, and, you know, even though the first sort of year I didn't have a lot on the go, I made stuff on the go. I got out, I met some bands, I networked, I got stuff going, you know, and after a couple of years, things sort of started taking care of themselves. It was certainly a big adjustment, Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, cult- culturally too, right? Like culturally, like from coming in a, living in a small Canadian town, like, like Montreal, it's not really a big town where you walk everywhere, take the subway and then all of a sudden, like you're driving two hours in traffic every day and dealing with that kind of stress and, you know, where you're maybe like on a more relaxed work schedule in Montreal, like you're doing 12 hour blocks a day, like sometimes three, four weeks in a row on sessions, like nonstop, like you had to really, uh, sort of be ready for it, I guess is the yeah. best way to put it. Well, you there's, know? there takes a certain amount of get up and go to, first of all, leave your comfort zone to go right. to a place that you're going to possibly fail. And, you know, I always sort of, appreciate yes, that. yes, exactly. I appreciate exactly. that. Exactly. You know, when yeah. pe- people take that chance and that jump, it's like the closest thing, like, you know, that I can, so, you know, my parents, they came across the ocean to a whole other country to, to become, you know, to do something to make life better. 
and they, right. they they did that and that's sort of the thing you did you just sort of uprooted left and you kind of knew some people but you're in a strange land like it's you know the exact opposite happened to me i moved to winnipeg which moved into a smaller town which was just right. as closed and just as clicky but the same idea super culture you know the culture is completely different even though we're all Canadian, you know, and it's even right. stranger going to Los Angeles. Cause I do know that there is like, there is a, a, a sharpness to the typical Los Angeles. Per- there's like, they're, they're just very, very tuned in and it's tough. Yeah. It's tough to sort of break into um, what they're doing. Cause just the fact that there's so much going on that sometimes the whole personality seems to just sort of close in a little bit. Right. For self-preservation right. reasons, you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's funny. Like now, I'm I've been out of the city now for five years. I've been li- I live an hour north up in the uh, L.A. Uh, up in the Grapevine. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. On, in in the mountains, I'm up at like four thousand feet, so it gets cold and I get snow here. So I've like kind of, I've I've uh, it's the it's the smallest community I've ever lived in, you know. <laughs> yeah. But and it's only an hour away from town, so I commute in for business all the time, yeah. but. Um, I'm able to have a recording studio here uh, in the house that I live in. So I have a live workspace. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes things manageable uh, in the sense like Los Angeles has gotten like an incredible, like all cities has become incredibly expensive to live in. Yeah. Well, even 20 like, years ago it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when I moved down 25 years ago, it was pretty cheap, actually. It was still pretty much a transient kind of town. Yeah. They hadn't, they hadn't had that big adjustment in real estate after the 07, 08 crash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sort of like after that, like after 07, 08, everything just ramped up and kept going, mm-hmm. you know, to the point now where the homeless issue down here is serious. Like under every underpass, you see people, you know? Yeah. Every, yeah. Everywhere. I was down there with so, my daughter. Um, we went to Disneyland and we stayed up in Los Feliz, actually. And yeah. uh, I went, you drive past Skid Row and at why they got the name. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's not frightening, but it's very, it's very jarring to see like that amount of, like, what is it up to now? Like the population is quite high. They say there's 26,000 people homeless on the streets in LA right now. Oy, but I don't think that that's an accurate number. I think it's more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, you I know? heard a pretty high number too, but. It's like I heard like 40, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it's forty thousand to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah, and it's I don't know it, it it's because of the it is because of the climate you know like you can't oh for sure you can't die you can't die in the, well maybe not in the heat but you can't really die because it's cold and yeah you know that's a similar thing to Vancouver because it's like there's a oh, lot yeah, of yeah. homeless people in Vancouver because of the the weather really you know but yeah uh, yeah so so well, go to go go to Austin Texas. <laughs> yeah yeah so when you're when you got that job at west beach and you started like you know because that's such a that's a famous like punk rock mecca of of all things you know and it was always yeah. like big sort of like you've arrived if you can do something down there or have something done or be able to afford the luxury of you know doing it but it was punk rock yeah. right? like yeah you must have gone through some crazy crazy bands and you know, just all these things. Oh God, I'm sure there's a book in there somewhere. You has know? to be. There has yeah, to be. Yeah. I mean, just like some, some of the adventures, uh, uh associated with, with that place at the time. And, and, uh, yeah, it was famous and it was sort of a little infamous as well. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, which is fine. But uh, but that room was kind of a really special room, uh, that old producers workshop, producers one and two, and um, a bunch of uh, a bunch of stuff was was tracked in those rooms uh, uh, during the sixties and seventies. You know, before long before West Beach was there, so there was always mm-hmm. kind of a vibe in the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but when I when I when I got there was right at the time the second Rancid record was hitting. We just were gearing up to do that No Effects Punk and Drublick record. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of that Offspring record was just hitting. Yeah, um, you know, like everything was just at the right time for punk rock was when I when that's when I showed up in L.A. Yeah, yeah. So 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 that was really helpful. We were selling records, you know. Yeah. Like you do, you do a small band, like you do a small LA punk rock band, and you sell ten thousand records. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or ten thousand CDs at the time, right? Yeah. Ten thousand. Well, well, Brad Gerwitz told me, like, because when I was down there with us in a few, they told me stories about like, the Offspring were selling fifty thousand CDs a week out of the back door of the <laughs> of their label, like Offspring. Yeah, out of the, out of the little. Them. Yeah, out, out, out of that little storefront place on Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. And Brett had to actually go and buy a forklift. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. He had to go buy a forklift because they, they, they needed the forklift to get all the offspring CDs onto the trucks. It's amazing. That is Because the boxes so- kept coming and then the, the pallets. Then they, first it was boxes, then it was pallets. And when it got to pallets, I was like, okay, well, we need a forklift. <laughs> And well, I mean, it's a difficult, it's a fun spot to be in. But the fact that you know he persevered just with that amount, that sheer amount of volume, that speaks pretty high to his. Like that's the another thing. That's there's a get up and go there. That you know, you know, I I I haven't really talked to him, but I would love to on this show because he's he's a fascinating guy. Like he's gone through a lot of stuff too. But the um, he showed me his when he lived just behind uh, the Hyatt. He had that place on the hill. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember he, it. He he because we went there when I was with SNFU and he we got invited to his place to go just hang out and he showed us in the house had like a real THX system and like one from the movie theaters and he played that opening you know that chime that the THX is and his kids cried they were <laughs> that, <laughs> that loud and he had a punk rock nanny I remember that much and uh, yeah he he's a, he was a, yeah he's very very accommodating and. And just, you know, to be able to do a DIY record label and still be DIY, but still do massive volumes like that. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was incredible. And it just kind of snowballed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There was a point where, there was a point where it didn't matter what signed to Epitaph, as long as it signed, it sold. Yeah. That was a fat records thing too. Like, you know, if you were on fat records, you could sell 10,000 records in a week. Like, you know what I mean? Like. Just because yeah, you're oh, on yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that that sort of brand awareness, I don't I don't know if that really exists anymore. Like, I'm sh- does it? I don't know. I like I'm kind of tuned out. Um, I think it does exist with those brands. Continues to exist with those two brands. Yeah, yeah. Because I had Erin um, on the show, and she told me like stories about like the dark days of the early 2000s. You know, the days of Napster and how it really yeah. almost sunk them. You know, and I'm sure everybody went through that. Yeah, no, I think I told, I think I told, I might've mentioned this in an interview a couple of weeks ago, but I was driving down a sunset and it was like 2001, 2002. 
Uh, it's like leaving A&M. I just finished doing some mixing, drive down Sunset, and they've put up a billboard, and the billboard has got these like CDs on it, and it's a- an Apple billboard, and it said, Rip, Mix, Burn. Yeah. Rip, huh. Mix, Burn. <laughs> and I looked at that, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's over. <laughs> and, you know, within 12 to 24 months, it was. Yeah. And – you know, this this has been a sort of a hot topic on the show from time to time again, that the people that sort of made all the money later on was the major record labels, because when they sold all their Spotify uh, music, the music to Spotify, they were selling at pennies on the dollar. Yeah. So they managed to make millions and millions of dollars, where the artist only makes very, very small amount of money based on 10,000 plays or something. I, I don't know where, how the algorithm works, but... It's a very frightening thing for art because it's a frightening thing, but it might also be a, a situation where people can sort of lace up their bootstraps and you know, strap up their boots and, you know, get to it and, and just find a new way. Cause that's kind of like the rule of punk rock is just find a new way to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And uh, so let, let me segue off that thought for just a, a sure. sec, Simon, like, like this Stephen Bradley record that I just did, or the, the record that I just did under that name, um, spot, the whole Spotify issue to me was, and the Apple Music issue to me was a pretty serious one to consider. Seems as I own the label and control the content, I can kind of choose to market it how I wish, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so the approach that I've taken, and it is, I think, a little bit of a different approach, is. Um, I'm, I'm trying to leverage Spotify and I'm o- I've only posted the singles, three singles. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the record, I'm not putting up on Spotify. So if people want to get the rest of the record, if they like the songs, if they like the singles, um, you know, I'm hopeful that they'll segue over to Porterhouse where I can sell them a, an LP, you know, or sell them a download. Yeah. You know, but I didn't, I just decided I wasn't going to like put the whole record out there for streaming, you know? Well, that, that makes and, sense. Um, yeah, totally. The, the LPs, the, if you buy a vinyl LP through, through Porterhouse, through the label, it comes with a download code in it. Yeah. So those customers get the, get, you know, both anyhow, yeah, you know, yeah. but yeah, I was just trying to think about, okay, well, well how do you, yeah, how do you how do you navigate that? How do you approach that? And that's the solution that I've come up with for now is to sort of use them, but not use them completely. The yeah, and it's getting people to go over to your website is a is brilliant. The, there is a problem though, is that iTunes and whatever Android play system that is in place for you to for them to take their phone to try to get the song into their phone, like it, to possess it. That really, they've cunningly sort of shut that off, you know, unless they make it difficult. And then you can put it on your computer and then bounce it over to your phone. But nobody syncs their phones with iTunes anymore. They just. No, no, that hasn't that hasn't happened for a long time. No, but it's sort of like (laughs) a cunning move. Like if they would have had like, for instance, the closest thing that people have indie bands have is is Bandcamp. And maybe, you know, big labels use it and small labels use it and they have their own player. But it still turns into, okay, we still control this market where for for DIY artists, there should be a method 
in your phone that you can manage your content how you want to, not be told how to do it. And you know, right. and it's very difficult to. I mean, I've tried it. Yeah, you know, you could, you can sell them the song, but they still gotta go through a bunch of work to be able to just play it in their car, or you know, it's there's, it's not there, and I I think it needs to be. And I don't. You, there's nobody's gonna change it because they're not gonna make it as more money that way, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think we could do as individual merchants, we could do individual on demand if at some point, right? Yeah. Like, like. Part of the way I have the Porterhouse website set up is like it's got its own players. Yeah, right? I saw that. They yeah, are yeah. not they are not uh, Bandcamp players. They're standalone Porterhouse Records players. Yeah. Did you so design? If you it come over did... to the website, you click on one of those. You can preview and stream the album at Porterhouse as long as you want. You can listen to it as many times as you want for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to purchase a file, you can purchase the file and pull it down. You know that way, if if you know, you can pull down. Uh, I'm I'm just like selling uh, M M4As. Yeah. Because it it seems like the it seems like the wave file. There's just not that much demand for it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. People seem to want the more compact, smaller files. The higher res MP3s sound pretty good. They sound pretty good. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So, anything above anything below 320 kbps is. Is good enough you know your ears are right. in your car or whatever i mean even on your phone and whatnot that's i you know that is um it's it's uh i i, I appreciate that because it, it it does open it up for people to sort of invent new ways to to keep what's theirs in their house and then manage it how they want to um right and and doing that it does the, you know i always thought you know bands should just have their own record label why are you going to band camp and then so it's yeah. like and then and then I realized <laughs> it's there's a reason for it because they have that support system and it just gets played everywhere on anything however you want to handle it but it's not yours you know you're kind of giving up that yeah you know i yeah i there's there's got to be something that's coming around the corner that allows independent bands to do more with what they got i i i definitely think that there will be you know i think that eventually uh the majority of uh music commerce will kind of go that way you know yeah like go go to the individual there'll still be some sort of like you know talent pool or tastemaker somewhere but you know at some point the label machinery is going to kind of fall to to the wayside a lot of young artists are being successful by holding on to their publishing yeah. and, you know, working to find some sync stuff and playing live and doing recorded stuff. Like they're, they're working all angles of the business like we used to in the old days, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, a... um, you know, it's still, it's still, it's, it's, it's still a business that requires a, a ton of work and keeping your eye on the ball. You know, I'm doing press in house for my thing right now and it's yeah. eight hours a day. Like, tracking down writers and calling radio stations and mm -hmm. it's you know <laughs> it's yeah. it's the things that you do no it's not and it's 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 super commendable but there's not a lot of people like you out there i mean like i this is this has been another topic that's come up you know when so, so could you imagine kirk cobain having to like i mean open up a computer and sort of manage kirk cobain stuff like his music as well as his the way he was 
he needed someone to take care of him sometimes, you know what I mean? And sometimes yeah. the label was there to sort of help him. And there right. was a team of people that were like trying to support people like that. Then the industry changed where people started putting on different hats. But I think in some way the art has suffered a little bit because knowing when, what, when to put what hat on at what time is the magic of it all, you know, and you got it locked in. This is great because you're an artist, but you're also business savvy, but you're also, you're, you're in tune with what's happening. There's not a lot of people out there like that. And therefore the people that the weirdos and the people who don't know, you know what I mean? That right. terribly artistic people who might just completely change the music industry. They're kind of lost because they don't know how to talk to people. And that's a tricky situation to be in. Sure. Sure. But again, then that, that's why we have managers, right? Yeah. yeah. And then we, there are, there are folks that sort of translate on that, on, on that level. Yeah. Um, but as we move to a platform, move away from these support systems yeah some of those uh folks will suffer yeah you know there's there's no doubt about it and 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 perhaps some of the art that is 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 worth hearing may 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 not be heard you know i think your yeah your point's well taken yeah yeah but you know you know commendable that you're uh, you're you're doing something i mean you it must be a little bit easier because you've met so many great people and you got actually a lot of people playing on this album too right like yeah, yeah. I was for, I, um, I, I was fortunate to put together like a good team of folks. The idea was sort of like to, on each song, to play the core of the instruments myself yeah. and then have uh, an individual kind of come onto each track and sweeten it up. And um, you, yeah, and you asked them as friends, you know, that's, a, that's cool. Hey, for sure, you know. Um, and everybody that I asked was super excited about contributing. So that was, uh, that was, that made it a lot easier, you know, when people are supportive, you know, yeah. and then, you know, it's important to choose to work with talented people. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's a testament to you as a personality that people want to help, you know, and, you know, I'm always super flattered when, if I say, Hey, do you know, let's do this thing. And someone says, sure, let's do that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That means maybe something was done right along the way. Because, right. You know, maybe I didn't right. piss that person well, off. It, but also, like, like, the majority of the folks that were chosen on to play on that record, that I chose to play on that record, they're all folks that I've had some sort of, like, a, a fairly intense artistic experience with yeah. somewhere else. Like, I produced two Seven Seconds records, you know? Like, so working with Bobby Adams from seven seconds that was like that was a dream come true you yeah, know yeah but we'd already had we'd already kind of gone to to war together you know yeah. so and and then you figure out okay that's a guy you want in your corner right yeah i i wanted the other reason i wanted bobby to play on this record was because a lot of people don't know that that bobby adams is a very uh, capable jazz guitarist Really? Um, you know, they think him. Uh, they think him as the hardcore punk rock guy. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, the guy's got an incredible jazz knowledge and vocabulary, and so I put him on. Instead of putting him on a hard rocking song, I put him on a ballad that I wanted some jazz voicings on. And so it's not the match that people I think might think of, but it works in the context of the song. And yeah. he 
added just the right parts in the right places to to to, to make it work. Yeah, you know? Yeah. And how how long did it take for you to pull this together? And is it the typical solo thing where it's like, oh my God, it's taken five years to pull together, or was it fast? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um you know, I because I kind of thought, oh well, I'll just knock this out, right? Yeah. And and um I mean, it took a while just to write the core of the songs, yeah, you know, Yeah. took a couple of months to write the lyrics, a couple took a couple of months to shape the music to the point where it's like, OK, this is a jumping off point. We can start laying down some bed tracks and see how things shape up, you know, but all of that sort of was developed and prepared. I'm going to say um, by the time it got to the street uh, this fall. I want to say two and a half years. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. About two and a half. I'm going to say two and a half to three years. I think part of it was the the things that I sort of didn't, you know, you sort of say, oh, we'll we'll just kind of, you know, throw down and do it. But um, not only are you kind of sort of playing all the parts, but you've got to write all those parts. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, kind of sit back and listen to them, come up with the bass part and go, okay, well, how is that? Well, that's not very good. <laughs> like we should probably do something better than that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then work on that for, work on that for a while. Yeah. So, so developing the actual parts, um, you know, that played into it as well. You know, I don't think the writing process was stagnant at all. In fact, I sort of think that when push came to shove and I finally said, okay, this is it, we're moving forward and we're going to, just set aside time to solely write. Like there's no other sessions, no other people, no other business, no nothing, just yeah. coming to work to write every day and sitting at the table with the word processor and all the treatments of the different songs on the table right in front of you to look at, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like, that, that's the, that was the, the way I, that I motivated myself to get that part, get through that part of the job, you know, it is tough to but, do. Um, it's tough to do. Cause life is, is life. Is. Is, right? And I, and I yeah, and I wanted I wanted lyrics that were developed and thoughtful and articulate, uh, and that took a little bit of uh, that can be taken, you know, one or two ways. I just I just wanted it to I didn't want that part of it to sound sort of rushed. It was kind of funny. I was talking with somebody about this the other day, but I was talking about he was talking about uh, we were talking about writing and. Uh, and I was saying, yeah, I read this article with uh, an interview with Billy Joe from Green Day. And he said that when they went in to do Dookie, he didn't have any lyrics written for it. What? Really? And he, yeah. And then he basically kind of wrote it all there, you know, in the studio, off the studio floor. <laughs> and he said, he said in the interview, he says, I, w- I knew I was never going to do that again. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And so... I, I I wanted those lyric ideas to be developed. I wanted to make sure that the stories were standing up. Um, I had a couple of guys that, oh, a couple of old Montrealers, my friends George Wall from Jerry Jerry and my friend Mark Goodwin. I'd uh, I would send them drafts of stuff and yeah. go, you know, what do you think of this? How's this one sounding? Um, you know, to the point where I had sort of. Uh, vetted the material through a couple of people that I felt whose opinions I could trust. And uh, if I was taking too many liberties, they were going to let me know. 
That's you yeah, know. yeah. Having some because as I you know I write songs too, and I haven't for a while. But when I did, it was like tough to get someone to go. Yeah, that sucked. You know, <laughs> you should probably yeah you should probably rethink yeah. that one. You know, I put a whole record out of that. You know, where someone didn't actually say, "Hey, maybe you should uh, go write more songs." And that's the problem with being your own artist. With my problem, anyways, because there was a lot of yeah, that's pretty good. You know, and I was so tunnel vision that I wouldn't listen to anybody what anybody said. And then next thing you know, you put a record out that's sort of half baked, and that's not cool, right? Well, and again, back to the collaborations, right, and getting other people involved. Yeah, I, I think knowing about who I was sort of bringing in, so what I had to present to them had to be pretty together. Yeah, you, you know, or things were going to go fall flat pretty quick. I can remember taking the uh, files down to Wayne's office on Fairfax and to Wayne Kramer's office and saying, "Okay, here you go," and he put the stuff on and pulled the files up right away. I didn't expect him just to just start playing it, you know. <laughs> so, but he throws it up on the computer, pulls it up right away. And he just starts vibing on it, listening to it, you know, and he turns to me and he looks at me and goes, dude, cool. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, right on. You know, like he's hearing, he's hearing what I want him to hear in the songs. He can hear that these are the songs that I've picked for him because they're the right ones for him to play on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kevin, Kevin Kane, you know, from, from grapes and from Northern Pikes. I needed that George Harrison guy you yeah. know that george harrison understudy yeah 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 and kevin does that kevin does that so well the wonderful thing about kevin is that not only is he an excellent you know a vocalist and a songwriter but you know he'll play great rhythm guitar he'll play great single note lead guitar he'll play great electric 12 string guitar mm -hmm. he'll play great acoustic guitar he'll play great lap steel guitar you can kind of throw anything at him and in that sort of harrison-esque way he just throws it right back at you yeah and so um there were a couple songs where i knew i wanted it to kind of you know push towards the beatles a little bit and george is my favorite beetle mm -hmm. and so i asked kevin if he'd get in, involved and and uh and kevin was really excited to get involved actually he told me he was really tickled that he was on this thing and you know with some of these other guys and that uh and that he was he had made a contribution to him to to it, and so mm -hmm. so that was really really nice to hear. And I, I think that the songs that he plays on are everything that he did was perfectly appropriate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just it just he knocked it out of the park. You couldn't ask for anything more from the guy, you know. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you so you how many people now have have been on this record now? So you have gosh. <laughs> well, let's see. We talked about Bobby. We talked yeah. about Wayne. We talked about Kevin. Yeah uh there's um another guitarist the canadians might not know him that well some americans might the guy's name's angelo bundini he goes by the name of scrote <laughs> and uh like a berkeley guy who is kind of plays in that bob quine kind of richard lloyd tradition mm -hmm. uh a little outside a little crazy um and i had seen him with a band in town and struck up a uh, you know, an acquaintanceship with him. And um, I sort of knew I wanted to get him involved. So I've got him on a couple of like the, the rock and songs, uh, Summer Bliss, which is sort of like a kind of a Neil Young and Crazy Horse song. He plays on that. Mm -hmm. And he plays on another one called Calendar Girl, which is kind of, uh, I think to kind of the Bob Coyne kind of 
side of things, pretty kind of screaming and very elitish. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Um, and then, uh, oh, uh, background vocals. I, I, I knew I wanted sort of like a Jordan Ayers kind of like guy, Beach Boys kind of guys yeah. back up ensemble. Like that was going to happen. Like that was going to be on this record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked my friend Mike Carrera from MXBX if he would sing with me. And the reason why I was sparked on that is, again, like old work relationships because you know, when I was doing that life in general record for those guys, which is a huge breakthrough record, mm-hmm. um, Yuri, the drummer and Tom, the guitar player didn't, they weren't really singing at that time. Right. So anywhere we needed a second voice on that record, I sang background vocals oh, wow. with Mike and our voice yeah. and our voices sound good together. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so I knew, okay, that's a good choice, right? Mike's a good friend. He's easy going. He's supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's kind. He'll give a little time to get involved. And I actually flew up to Seattle and, you know, I, I had all the parts laid out already, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I flew up to his studio, Monkey Trench, in uh, Seattle for a day, and we hung out there and just knocked out all the, the vocal parts. And then the other guys from MXPX came in, and we did some some group backing vocals while I was up there. So I got those guys involved, and then also in the backups, I got uh, Stephen McDonald from Red Cross, who's... Uh, you know, I love all those Red Cross records and I love the vocals and I love the backups mm-hmm. on those records. Mm-hmm. Like the backups on that phase shifter record, they're insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, well, let me ask Steve if he wants to do some singing. He's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I sent him over one of the tunes. He says, this is really good. I like this. Yeah, let's do this. So so he got involved. So that that got our little kind of, the three, the, myself and those two guys ended up sort of being the little Jordan Hairs ensemble. <laughs> that's amazing yeah yeah the funny thing was is like sort of like steve mcdonald and i our, our physical makeup is the same we're both about the same height both about six two and we're both kind of slight and kind of thin white guys and our voices kind of sound a lot alike so it was more of a challenge to kind of blend our voices together on some of those backups than i thought it was going to be yeah really yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but those parts turned out really cool and, I, and i'm i'm stoked on those uh on all those stacked backups, you know, I wanted something that was very textural. I wanted something that was very Beach Boys and Hawthorne, you know, and yeah, yeah. I, I wanted something that had just a taste of that 60s thing in it, but has the thread of the 90s and felt kind of now, yeah. you know, at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the record sounds fairly fresh. I don't know if radio programmers would agree with that or whether yeah. A&R people would agree with that. But I think I'm doing a sound that um, this power pop sound. I don't. It's not a sound that a lot of people are doing right now. I think you're pretty good. You got your thumb on it. I think there's going to be, there is going to be a renaissance with '90s music. It's already kind of starting to happen. Where, you know, right. like bands like Fountains of Wayne can go on tour. They're still, you know what I mean. Or uh, Jim yeah. Blossoms are still touring, and and like there is going to be a time when this is probably going to come circle because everything by nature comes full circle again, you know? Um, you know, we had dark times with punk rock and then we had like, you know, the heyday and then power pop and everything has always kind of been there. And yeah, like I, I truly think that there's, yeah, because how we are with, with the way social networking goes with, you can find your audience um, exactly what you want to find. Like, 
You want to yeah. find crazy techno Japanese eight bit psychedelic power pop? Then it's out there. <laughs> you know, you'll find it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just defining the audience is is you know is is being is is unfortunately it's the trickiest part is is trying to find people who think like you you know yeah yeah for sure and like from a label perspective i'm sort of seeing that as i kind of get my record out there and begin to market it yeah um you know two-thirds of the publications that i've had a label for 20 years two-thirds of the publications that i used to do business with are gone really yeah um (laughs) And is that because you know, of social media or is that just, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, and that, that, that's the publishing field is in, in media is just as challenged right now as the music field is. Huh. And there's, they're kind of trying to figure it out too, you know? Yeah. And, and I talked to some of these people that are publishing, uh, you know, magazines like, exclaim you know or georgia Strait, or uh you know the la uh la weekly you know these are folks that i reach out to in the course of doing business as a record label you know and i know that there's been a lot of belt tightening everywhere you know and in and there's going to be more more belt tightening too you know i i i think before it's before 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 it's all 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 said and done but yeah it's it's uh, I mean, I'm, I'm marketing from the standpoint that, you know, somewhat old school, like music publications or online music publications, trying to get people to write it, trying to get people to play it at college radio, mm-hmm. trying to people to get people to play it at commercial radio, um, trying to, you know, get blogs to write it in addition to traditional magazines, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then the YouTube thing. And I actually think the YouTube thing is one of the things that maybe folks aren't mining enough. Yeah. Um, or maybe they're taking it for granted. I'm not sure. Uh, but um, for my for the Stephen Bradley record, I'm doing a video for every song on the record. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm going to just release them one after another, and it's going to give me uh, uh, something to talk about for a year. You know, I, I can keep I can keep the I can keep the story going and keep it in the media for a year with eleven or twelve videos. Yeah. And- so so and and so what I did was when I uploaded that stuff through the aggregator, I didn't have the record posted uh, on on YouTube. The only record postings that are going up are the actual videos for the songs that I create, and that means I can I can swat down anybody else that posts the record. Yeah. I, I can and I see it from outside on my channel. I can swat it down, and that's one way to kind of control those streams and keep them hyper focused. You know, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm trying to make an effort to pay attention uh, to YouTube. Uh, I made a video for the single Capitol Hill. Uh, I found a Facebook group uh, from my old hometown in Burnaby, British Columbia, where Capitol Hill is, mm-hmm. and I posted it in there. And in a, two weeks, it's gotten, uh, it's on its way to 12 or 1300 views. Yeah. 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 So, so it, that, that there, there's an example of finding your audience, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
like like tracking it down of course now i'm trying to lean on the commercial radio station in vancouver and say hey people like this song in this town please play it mm-hmm. you know and that's like i don't know we'll see what happens with that but it it, it it's sort of leveraging the marketing based on the immediate successes you have right yeah yeah and now do you think like terrestrial radio is is a viable method of selling records like is this is it still relevant like what do you think? Um, I think it is, um, but I think it's pretty difficult to break through. Yeah. I think that the I think that the bands that are getting played on terrestrial radio, I think they're selling records. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think they're getting streams. You know, I think they're part of sort of the vernacular, if as it were. Right. Um, they're, and they're well represented. And most of these terrestrial radio stations in the, in North America, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, there's about sixty songs. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Right? For alternative, active alternative, uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like in that commercial vein, probably about 60 songs are getting played. Now move outside to AAA and start pulling in. Okay, now you're starting to pull in a new Lucinda Williams single or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, or, mm-hmm. or a PJ Harvey song or something like that. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah. but when we're talking about the K-Rocks, when we're talking about the Peaks, when we're talking about the the um uh stations like that the the playlists are quite narrow it's tough to break in it's all corporate it's 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 next to impossible is it still people putting uh little baggies but that doesn't mean but that doesn't mean sorry just let me finish that thought but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you should ignore it right right like i put a radio program together i i i had cds shipped to me like in pieces Mm -hmm. like like I didn't even pay them to assemble them or shrink wrap them. Right. I just had CDs sent on a spindle and empty jewel boxes and one sheet J cards. Mm-hmm. And I was able to put together 300 CDs to mail out to radio stations for 600 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you bet I did it, you know, <laughs> and I, and I did physical mail outs because this is what I think. I think that they can ignore an email that comes in. Oh, that has yeah. that has a down that has a download code attached. Well, they can't ignore a CD coming through the front door. No, so no, that's true. All the stations, all the radio stations, I hit from both sides. They all got a copy of the CD. They all got a copy of the the uh, of a digital download and code via email as well. And you know, you just I, I figure you've got to make it easy for people in this day and age. Make sure that it's 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 it's. Uh, that wherever they turn, the answer for their question is there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember 20 years ago, was it 20 years, something like almost 20 years ago, we put a record out and um, we put gave it all the college radio stations and sent them out. And then we just, you could post, you could see like where the, if there was any charting or plays. And uh, there were some towns that didn't play it. So we thought, well, you got our CD. So my thing is I want to make actual like a, a, my own documentary of me going to every radio station to get the CD back. <laughs> can i have it back because I, I could sell it you know and make this the thing it's like college radio is like you know obviously notorious for getting all the music but they curate what they want to play and then they just sort of at back i don't know what it's like now but they would just play what they wanted to but you no. there was no coercing you could sort of say here it is and if you like it play it but if they didn't can i have it back you know <laughs> and that's and that hasn't that hasn't changed like the music directors still take the CD or, or the files or whatever and go, Hey guys, here it is. It's here. Go ahead and use it if you want. Yeah. But they, they, they don't, 
enforce any sort of playlist. So there's no cohesion over college radio. Yeah. And w- what you tune in one day and hear at one time is not what you tune in, what you hear at the same time the next day, because yeah. those time slots are different every day. Yeah. And it's so weekly rotation, right? That, that's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. So to try and pull together, you know, and track a song, like, and get people to play it cohesively, forget it. It's yeah. never going to happen. No. You know what we do? We go in and we focus on the three or four DJs that we think are going to get it. Mm-hmm. And we write, we write them or we try to talk to them or we tweet at them. Yeah. Yeah. And go, and we go, get on this dude, get on this. You know, we try to find a way, you know, to communicate, you know, one way or another, but we use email a lot mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, in supporting records on, on, on Porterhouse, I've learned to do a better job of that over 20 years, right. Yeah. To sort of learn how you run a, run a record label. Um, is that um, that that the system's very efficient? Actually, uh, yeah. my system's very very efficient, and stuff is getting where it needs to go for not a heck of a lot of money, and uh, we don't spend a lot of money in in you know fancy productions. Like oh, we we have nice records, like the the Ford Maddox Ford uh, record that I did for Chip Kinman and Tony Kinman. That's mm-hmm. this really cool sort of like uh, hand silk screened. Uh, you know, item that comes uh, comes in a plastic bag, with, and 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 Chip made these really cool lyric sheets, these really punky lyric sheets that he xeroxed at Kinko's, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, to drop in him. And it's like it was like a it was like a make it home project. I had the whole living room filled with <laughs> silkscreen covers, yeah. you know. Yeah. But like those are the kind of things that we try to do to you know, along with adding, you know, download codes, doing nice labels, putting nice stickers on them, like. We try to do things that make the products look value added, you know, the reissues, the reissues that we do, you know, we try and do them on 180 gram vinyl or we try and do them on colored vinyl Mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that urge overkill, uh, reissue that Porterhouse has done. Like it's actually performed pretty well. It's pretty popular. Mm -hmm. Um, and we did, we did a pressing in blue clear. Now we've done a pressing in clear, like, like clear, clear vinyl. And I think, uh, that's going to come up for a repress soon. I think I'm going to do one in lime green. We'll see yeah. how that we'll see how that yeah. turns out. The Stephen Bradley one I did uh, uh, like a custom blue, mm-hmm. um, and blue is kind of a theme uh, in the art in the artwork on the record. Um, I kind of pieced the, that whole concept together off of some like some '70s you know power pop records, and and uh, I also I always liked that the album. Um, the sugar album copper blue copper blue yeah 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 and so the cover of uh, of summer bliss and autumn tears kind of riffs off of those colors from copper blue mm-hmm. the golds the golds and the blues that are on that are sort of in that in, in that cover shot you know yeah yeah so i mean that's it's good to still have a sense of ownership in music and i guess vinyl for what it is um is that it is that light at the end of the tunnel that there is still ownership in art and not, it's not just a commodity, but it's something that someone's proud to own. And that, that doesn't exist anywhere anymore. And that's probably why vinyl is on such a big resurgence over the past couple of years. Right. Absolutely. And people are figuring out new ways to package it. I just saw, uh, I was over at the distributor the other day and they had these seven-inch bags with a, a flexi disc in it, yeah. a seven-inch flexi disc, and a booklet. And the booklet was 
uh, ooh, it was probably a 40 page booklet, like all gloss, like gorgeous. Yeah. And, and, um, and this, the guy that runs the distributorship, he says, Oh, careful with that. That's a $50, uh, package that that seven inch you know yeah. so pe- 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 people are finding ways to do value added and they're finding ways to make the products their own and very original yeah. I-, I wanted to do that with mine i you know i tried to make sure that the package looked really nice i wanted it slick i wanted it clean mm. um you know i wanted a nice layout i knew i want i knew because I had worked hard on the lyrics, I knew I wanted a proper lyric sheet, and I wanted that, all that layout done nice, you know, and mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that the other artists that were on the record are properly represented and mentioned, and not, you know, sort of stuffed in a corner somewhere, you know, in the in the copy where you know it's illegible kind of thing. But so, yeah, and that's a problem. I'm, I'm, that's a problem with Spotify is they don't know. You yes, don't know it is. Played on. You can't. Yeah. There should be a page you go to that says gives credits. There's never credits yeah. on it. Yeah, this is a huge issue with, with digital, and uh, producers have been complaining about this for years. Yeah, I bet. And, and lobbying the RIAA to sort of come up with some sort of system where it gets embedded along with the ISRC code or something like that, or yeah. you know. And I mean, that's another thing. Like, why aren't we using ISRC codes to track radio play so that the proper people get paid? You well, know? yeah, that's like, I mean, when you're making when you're making the final master, you can put anything you want in there. You know, you put the yeah, lyrics, absolutely, you know, and but but there's not a lot of people who have them, you know, that can pull out that information. It has the song yeah. title and, and the artist when you put it in your car, you know, yeah. and that's all, you know, it really shows. But I've, I've done one where they've I've put I've embedded the lyrics and you could do way more with that stuff. That's totally true. And there should be a, like, when it's playing, you no, know, they have Shazam, but they should be, with Shazam, it should actually have the credits because they know everything else about the song, which is, that's wizardry to me. I, I don't know how that works, but it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But there needs to be more, uh, more of a credit given to the people that work on it. And, you know, unless you're, unless you're sort of like, I don't know, kind of a wizard with information and, and knowledge and things, then... It's tough to go yeah. out and figure out who produced that, whatever record you like. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's, I think, a pretty broad complaint about the digital industry yeah. as a whole, is that seems to be pretty much an afterthought. Yeah. And nobody's really come in with any sort of, uh, you know, sort of a broad solution for this. Like I'm saying, like the RIA mandating, like, okay, you've got to do this, you know? Yeah. Like uh, for, 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 for the Stephen Bradley record, I made sure that the downloadable version has a, has a, an e-booklet, mm. you know, with lyrics and credits there. So as people pull it down, they do have something. Yeah. You, you know, and yeah. I thought again, like that 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 was important. That's the one way I could ensure that in with the digital package that folks are getting something, you know. Yeah. But I know what you're saying when what you're saying about Spotify, Apple Music, where you're hearing stuff just in the public domain. Yeah. You know, it's uh, sometimes impossible to know uh, yeah. what's going. Wh- and usually, going on. if you're listening to popular music, it's done by somebody. But that was sort of like bread and butter for producers, especially when it's like, "Oh, you did that record? Oh, awesome! Like, yeah, you do our record? You know what I mean? You like, better believe it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and it's because that the production business is a very word of mouth business. Totally. And people work with you because oh you worked with so and so and they enjoyed working with you or you worked on that record and we like the way that record sounds mm-hmm. so you know everything is a reference yeah. you know everything is everything is like you know 
finishing this job and like kind of setting up the next job as you're finishing this job kind of thing. And mm-hmm. you're, you know, when you're self-managed and you just kind of, kind of keep, keep it in, in rotation, you know, when you were, but I mean, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say like, I'm working on a, on a, I'm working on a band right now, a band called Slick Shoes that I did a couple of records for in the nineties for tooth and nail records. Oh, wow. And so we've kind of like, we've reunited up at my studio up at Hell's Half Acre and we're doing, you know, we're doing what we did 20 years ago again. And these guys were like kids when I first met them. They were, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And now they're, you know, adults with their own children, you know, amazing. That's amazing. Uh, 20, 20, years, 20, 20 years later, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, so we're, we've been getting together on, on, on weekends and pulling stuff together and talking about the old days and the new days or, yeah. you know, and, 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 and what have you. But um it's 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 been a it's been an interesting walk down 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 memory lane you know with so many people self-producing yeah it's rare and rare that you get bands in for full productions they might come in and do some guitars they might come in and do some drums or they might come in and do some mixing or they might send you some stuff to be mixed but it's uh, a lot fewer the bands where they're just coming in and going okay yeah we're going to track all this stuff at your place yeah yeah so yeah that's that's kind of kind of nice well michael beinhorn is actually doing like a pre-production service like he's selling his knowledge to how to make a song like hey you've right. come with this demo and then you're just going to do it on your laptop maybe you should learn like put some work into the structure of the song and, and right he seems to be doing really good with it you know and and that's sort of a direction that is lost because if you're sort of self-producing it's really you know what i mean it's it's easy to fall into a into a trap as well as into a just a cookie cutter type of version of a song right yeah, for sure. I, and, and and doing the Stephen Bradley record, I kind of had that sort of in the back of my head was like, be careful about getting things too samey or be careful about kind of going down the same roads here or there, you know, and I caught myself in a couple of places <laughs> <laughs> where it was like, oh, sh- shoot, you know, like you listen back to playback and you're like, well, that's a great take, you know, on the drums there. And then you're like, oh, but you played the same fill that you played on that other song, mm-hmm. you know, like. And you had to figure out, oh, okay, well, do we mute that or put a backward symbol there? Or what, you know, how do we deal with that? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But yeah. like for, for the most part, I've been making records for so long and doing it for so many other bands that you kind of understand what the template is. Mm-hmm. And you know that, hey, you know what, as long as you're playing by the rules and sticking to the template and doing what the song is telling you to do, you're, you're pretty much probably going to be okay. Yeah. That's amazing. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so, and that's sort of what I did. Like, aside from asking for help for folks just to vet the songs, the rest of it was pretty much just throw yourself in there and start doing it. Oh, and and, and teach yourself how to sing. Do yeah. That too. Yeah. That's <laughs> teach true. Yourself yeah. How, yeah, teach now, yourself how to sing. Now you have your gear. You can actually take all the time you want to get things perfect. You don't need to go too crazy with the, uh, the auto-tune. And, you know, you just take the time and, and give it the best oh. you can, right? I was getting I was getting ready to cut the master to send down to the pressing plant to start carving lacquers and I'm listening to the single going man there's like two lines in that intro that are flat oh god <laughs> so needless to say yeah I went back in and re-recorded them yeah yeah uh yeah. but for the most part I managed yeah I mean is the are the vocals perfect no mm-hmm. uh it's a, it's a little pitchy here and there but for the most part, they sound like they're sung with conviction and sung like they come from the heart. Wow. Something, uh, 
something that I learned from Alex from the Nils, you know, yeah. he was, he, he was good at that. He always sounded passionate. He always sounded, sounded like he cared about what he was singing about. Mm-hmm. Prissy Hind is really good that way. She's one of my favorite singers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very, very expressive. She can, you can just kind of hear her roll the words in her mouth. You can see the smile on her face as, yeah. as she, as she's singing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and somebody actually told me the other day, they said, you know, I find that the the tone of the record uh, is very positive. It comes from a positive place. It's upbeat. And so um, I thought that's a pretty good compliment because some of the subject matter is a little bit dark. Yeah. Uh, so that um, that's, that's positive feedback that it's not too much of a downer. I mean, there's some ballads, but, sure. uh, but uh, you know, and, and, and you need to have some, you know, I sort of talked about pacing earlier, you know, and uh but i i always tell people i have the uh, the the 633 rule which is you know if there's sort of 12 songs in the record six of them are mid tempo three of them are sort of balladish or down tempo and three of them are up tempo <laughs> and if you use that template no matter which way you sequence it it always ends up working yeah 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 like it's just the right amount of everything to kind of carry you to the end of the record. You yeah. Know? I was told that your least strongest song should be the second last song. That's what I, for some reason. Interest. That's interesting. And you know, I thought that's what I did. I think, I think on the one on my record, the one that I thought maybe a uh, hiding place, which is one that I, I wasn't that crazy about. I liked the song. Yeah. I thought, I don't know if it's as good as some of the other ones. So I put it second to last. I think there's Stephanie- 11. I, Stephen from there's all 11 the songs uh, there's 11 songs on the record so it's in the 10 hole yeah, yeah and uh i had sent the, the the record over to my little brother michael to hear because he's also a musician mm-hmm. and he wrote me back he goes oh yeah i, I really like that song hiding place the one the second to last one oh, so oh, that yeah. one's a really good <laughs> so there you go you think you're putting the one that you might think is a little compromised yeah and then somebody like from your own flesh and blood <laughs> tells you oh no you're onto the right thing there that's actually the right that's the good stuff yeah yeah i think stefan <laughs> stefan from all told us that story when i was when he was he was recording this band trigger happy i played in the early 90s yeah and of course he, he of course, said yeah. he said uh yeah he always put the weakest or the weakest song second to last and I, I, yeah, I like, I like that sage advice. So, um, yep. well, Hey man, this is, uh, this has been great. I, yeah, I really like, uh, you know, the, the record's good. Everything's good. And the, the, the label been going for so many years and you got so many great people playing on your record and you've done so many great releases and I'm glad we got to connect again, man. Cause the only time we really did connect musically was through this two line filler record you mixed. That That's I, right. That I had recorded. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's uh, right. And I think that was the um, the the funny thing about well, I mean, not without getting too much with the, the guy who sang and I, but he was crazy. But so we had, to, I got we were just talking about <laughs> yeah. it today with the next member of Two Line Filler, and he said, um, I remember Nikki Garrett calling me on the phone saying, "Can you join this band full time?" And I'm like, "Well, why?" He goes, "Well, I can't work with I'm having troubles working with like the, the guy, the lead guy." I'm like, yeah. uh, no, that's why I'm not yeah. in the band. <laughs> you know, oh so, but, gosh. um, but yeah, man, you know, so, you know, it's good to, uh, it's good to connect again and like, yeah, any, absolutely. Anytime. Uh, man. Absolutely. And, uh, we're doing, um, Porterhouse is going to be doing some stuff with Art Bergman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I've just signed him for a new record. Yeah. So I want to send him to your show. Totally. And the you know, funny thing is I'm working with Lois of the Low 
and they have a song called "Life Imitating Art," which is okay. about which is about Art Art Bergman, which is <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, oh, that absolutely, man. I, you know, anybody you want to send this way, I I will gladly speak to because uh, you know I do it every week, and it's good to talk to people every week. You know, I don't want to don't only take any weeks off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's kind of one of those things where once you start doing it, you just, you absolutely have to keep it up, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's how you build the audience and that's how you, uh, and that, not only how you build the audience, but that you build the interest of folks to come on and talk with you. you yeah, know? absolutely. You know, and I'm 252 episodes in now, so I'm five years. So it's, wow. it's, uh, it's been my, it's, I've, I've been in this podcast longer than I've been in most bands. So, uh, that, I got that going for me. <laughs> <laughs> well hey man. Cool, man awesome thank you so much for doing the show and i will keep in touch when it comes out and we will uh we will uh we will we'll make it happen yeah absolutely i'm looking forward to it and thanks so much i enjoyed uh, talking about all the, the pretty broad subjects tonight which yeah. is really nice amazing great to talk about a bunch of different stuff and that was steve kravak his project he's worked on is under the name stephen bradley you can pick it up on Porterhouse Records now. Porterhouserecords.com is the record label website. There's a bunch of other records on there too. Like he does, he does, he's done a lot of records. He's been a record label for quite a while. Independent record label, by the way. And um, I mean, yeah, the amount of work that he's done over the past 30 years, it's pretty awesome. And you know, the record's good. Everything's good. Like the record's great and uh, you should pick it up. All right. So what am I going to say? Yeah, nice long episode for you to go out. And uh, uh, as always, the uh, best of um, uh, best of the podcast will be coming out probably just before New Year's. Looking forward to putting that together. I don't know who's going to be the guest host with me, but we'll figure it out. We'll get somebody to to come up and talk on this. Uh, I don't know. Any ideas? Let me know. Actually, if you want to send me that, go to appalock.ch/contact and send me a thing. If you want to be a guest host on it, I, I mean, I am not judgy, not picky, not judgy. Uh, yeah so anyways I hope you have a nice restful couple of next couple of weeks and we'll see you on the other side okay bye